0: Thank you to all who were leading us in worship. I want to continue my greeting for all of those of you who are quite literally directly above me on the third floor. We're here on the second floor. Some of you are watching remotely from on, uh, at home or if are on the road or wherever you might be. And I just want to point out the excruciatingly obvious that we are in the last Sunday of the year 2020. I don't think that means it's going to be the last Sunday ever But it's the last and final Sunday of the year 2020, which I get to these points in the year and I always have a tendency to look back and reflect, get a little bit nostalgic of what all has happened over the last year and some of the thoughts that I have thunk or or the feelings that I have felt. And I, I wonder if at any point this year you have looked around sort of your immediate sphere of influence or the world on the whole and you've wondered what is going on and then more specifically, perhaps more remedially, what does the world really need? What is this world in which we currently live and exist, what does this world really need? And if you're sitting in church, then you know that the right answer is always Jesus. No matter what the question is, if I ask you something and you're in church, you have to say Jesus. Well, that's true. It's absolutely Jesus. And yet, Jesus has come. Physical Coming of Christ has occurred and he will come again. And in the meantime, he's actually sent the third member of the Trinity, his Holy Spirit. He has come, he's done all that he can, and yet there is still so much uh, tremendous fear and anxiety, uncertainty, doubt, pain, and suffering. Not to mention a whole lot of people who still don't know this Jesus. So, Jesus has come, he will come again. The Spirit is present. So, in the interim, What does this world still need? One of my favorite quotes, I give this all the time in different devotionals or talks that I share. It's from a guy named Howard Thurman. He puts it this way. Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive and go do it. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Now, I will tell you personally that Quote, that truth was given to me by God at a fundamental, foundational moment in my life that forever changed the trajectory and the course of my life. Candidly, led me into a life of vocational ministry. That is what made me come alive. Now, when I think about what he means by what makes someone come alive and someone who has come fully alive, what is that person? I very succinctly call that person a grown-up. Not a a mature adult, necessarily, not a senior citizen. No, it has nothing really to do with your or my age, but they are a grown-up. And so let me just synthesize and summarize our big idea down to this for this morning. What the world needs is grown-ups. As I think about our world 2020 and all the fear, anxiety, uncertainty, doubt, hostility, animosity, and aggression... What I think this world could really benefit from is a whole lot more grown-ups. And I get the opportunity as the pastor in this context to look around our church family and go, man, if the world had a whole lot more of that guy, of that lady, of that student, if there was hundreds of thousands of them in replication That's what this world needs. What the world needs is grown-ups. The Apostle Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, a grown-up, I gave up childish ways. So what does our scripture tell us about what a grown-up is and how does that actually happen? I hope to leave as a gift for the remainder of 2020 this gift from God from our holy and inspired scriptures. So if you've got your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 5. You may not spend a ton of devotional time in 2 Samuel 5, so I'll give you a moment. If you can, just find the Psalms, keep turning left, you'll be there in no time. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Now I need to set up and give some context as to what's going on. I love the Old Testament. In fact, it reminds me a lot of the New Testament. But anyway, I love the Old Testament. And really and truly, you can sort of distill and boil down the Old Testament into three primary characters after, of course, the centrality of the person of God. In the Old Testament, you've really got three characters that sort of carry all of the narrative through. You start off with a guy named Abram, who's a pagan, idolatrous, Babylonian moon worshiper with a barren wife. That's how we're going to start this deal, God says. Spent a whole lot of time talking about Abram. Then we're introduced to Moses, this cranky Egypt-educated murderer with a speech impediment. That's how we're going to go for number two. And then we're introduced into King David, this hot-tempered red-headed shepherd with the most awkward collection of keychains you can possibly imagine. More on that later. That's where Saul sends him on a mission, and, well, David fulfills it, and then someone brings back, well, it was gross. These are the three primary carriers of the narrative of Old Testament scripture. Now, each one of those guys is super significant because each one of those three, God enters into Barit, that is covenant, a solemn binding built for blessing. God comes to each one of them, Abraham, Moses, and David, and enters into covenant. Very, very important. This morning, I kind of want to zero in and spend some time with David. I like that guy. I really like David. Abraham, of course, it's amazing. And Paul loved Abraham. Moses, wow, what a guy. What a prefiguring of Christ. But I like David, probably because he was a redhead. The text says he was ready and handsome. Now, my friend Ross, and I get into this all the time, he says, there's no way that he was a redhead. And I say, how come? And Ross says, because it says he was also handsome. I say, I understand that. But the text also says that he was a man after God's own heart, and that clearly means that he was a redhead because redheads love Jesus more. He says, that can't be right. Well, he was a chosen one. He was supposed to be like the embodiment of the people of God, clearly a redhead. Ross says, okay, I'm hanging up now, and I say, I'm not on the phone with you. I'm in your kitchen. It gets weird. That's how it usually goes with Ross. I digress. Moving on, back to David. David is a super significant character in the Old Testament because he points us to Christ. And what we find out is that Jesus is actually a better David than David himself. We know this because Jesus himself says so. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, Jesus says all of the scripture, and the only scripture that existed at that time was the Old Testament, it's all about me. It's all pointing to me. In other words, the Bible, including the Old Testament, cannot, must not ever be regarded as merely a book of stories and morals and fables intended to make you slightly better. To give you a little boost or a nudge, because if we treat it that way, then we'll treat all the Bible that way. Like we treat all other books of morals and fables, we toss them aside when they're no longer doing what we want them to do. It's not at all what the Old Testament do- is doing. It's pointing us to Jesus. Now, at this time in our story in Second Samuel chapter five, David has been anointed king by Samuel as a teenager. He's already killed Saul. I'm oh, sorry, he's already killed Goliath, and he's been pursued by Saul. He gets uh, pursued by Saul so furiously that when he's 20 years old, he has to abandon and flee into exile from King Saul. He's been anointed king by God, but he has to wait a full 10 years living in holes, being chased by Saul, almost killed, being chased by the Philistines, pressed in hard for 10 years. Sometimes that's how God's plan works. He tells us a things going to happen, and sometimes we have to wait. And during that waiting time, we have to be refined. It's a season in which we grow up. We even see it with Saul of Tarsus, who on the road to Damascus meets Jesus, and we think, well, that's it. Saul of Tarsus is going to be renamed Paul, and he's going to take over the world, except that it's 17 years later before he actually enters into his apostolic ministry. Sometimes God works that way. David has waited for 10 years, but God has been using that time to refine him, to polish him, to grow him up. So we're going to look at this story. I'm going to read it all the way through and then we'll unpack it very, very briefly. 2nd Samuel chapter 5, I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. 2nd Samuel chapter 5 beginning in verse 17 through verse 25. We believe that Samuel wrote this, and he says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-Perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come up against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. This is God's word. What a strange text with which to end this calendar 2020. What's going on here? Well, Let me remind you, as we go back to verse 17, I'm going to unpack these very briefly as we walk through and get a little bit more color. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, he's been in exile on the run for 10 years, pressed in by Saul's armies, pressed in by the Philistines. By the way, all that while defending the people of Israel, protecting the kingdom of Israel, the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel. All the Philistines went up to search for David because he used to be their vassal. He used to be sort of their, uh, their prisoner, their, their slave labor when he had to flee to their presence. They knew who this guy was, and so they say, we're going to go find this guy. But David and his mighty men hear of it, and they go down to the stronghold. And That's down in elevation, not down south. They go down in elevation to the stronghold. You might imagine like some medieval castle fortress. Eh, it's a hole in the ground. It was the caves of it's a, it's a. You can go there to this day. It's a network of caves that most often floods, and that's where they would hide. But it provided a good defensive position. David had very, a lot of familiarity with those caves because of all of his running around, hiding from Saul. All they went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Verse 18. Now the Philistines had come up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. <gasps> We're supposed to hear that and gasp. 3,000 years have passed, and so it doesn't really make the impact that it should. But the Valley of Rephaim, I think I've even got a picture of the Valley of Rephaim. You can go there today. It's about four miles west of Jerusalem. That's it. It's four miles west. This is the final speed bump before the evil, wicked Philistines come in and take over Jerusalem, before Israel is wiped out. They're four miles away it would be like if in the morning you woke up and there was a news flash and all your phones were going off and it said, the golden horde of the Mongol Empire <gasps> is in Chandler. And they're all at the Dairy Queen getting a Bar. prepare yourselves, or something. Maybe not exactly like that. Four miles to the west, the Philistines, they're four miles away. That's like being in Chandler. And these people were more modern. They had almost certainly come from the island of Crete. They're european they're bigger they're stronger they have more advanced weaponry they even have metal and they're four miles away we're supposed to be shocked with fear it's all we get from verse 18 the philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. it's very brief because we're supposed to sort of feel that intensity verse 19 and david inquired of the lord shall i go up against the philistines are you kidding me The bad guys who have been tormenting Israel since the time of Samson centuries earlier are now just four miles away from Jerusalem. Shall I go up? David, you're the king. You've been anointed king. Saul's dead now. How did Saul die? Mm, Let me see. The Philistines killed him. That's what they do. They're kingslayers. Shall I go up against them? Well, I mean, are not... People of Israel, God's chosen, favored, and and special people? Of course. Why is David doing this? Because David is growing up. He says there in verse 19, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? Notice where David's going to place the responsibility, where the glory is going to come. Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up. I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And again, you have to sort of understand the topography. David has the low ground. That's bad in hand-to-hand combat. He has the low ground. He's coming out of a flooded cave system, more than likely. The Philistines have gathered in the valley. They have weaponry. They have greater numbers. They know that this is the second string king because the first one's dead. His body is hanging on the gate of one of their cities. They have a much larger army than David's. They can't wait to wipe this dude out. David prays, should I go and face this enemy? God says, go, I will give them into your hand. It's the same pattern we see in all of the scripture. Go and take the land, I'm giving it to you. You've got to go, I'm doing the work. You have responsibility to act and to accomplish, I'm doing the work. To all the conquest, when Joshua goes in, go and take the land, I'm giving it to you. So who's responsible, God or me? Yes. As long as we remember proper perspective and who's actually the sovereign of the cosmos. David is a king with an army and yet he inquires of the Lord because David, you see, is growing up. And this was no easy task to pray as a king in those days. You had to have a priest come out wearing the linen ephod and they had to have the, the umim and the thumim, this, this little gemstones that they would spin and they would inquire. And God apparently answers, yes, go up and I will give you the battle. I will give the Philistines into your hand. Verse 20. And David came to Baal Perazim and defeated them there. That's it. That's all we get. Like, I kind of want to hear a whole lot more detail. I want to hear the sound of sword clanging shield. I want to hear the men yelling at each other. I want to see Kevin Costner riding slow motion on his horse into the fray. No, just David whooped him. That's all we get. Because the battle's not the point. The battle is not the point. The person is the point. The person of God is the point. And David is growing up and he inquires of the Lord. David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord, Yahweh, has broken through my enemies. Who does David give the credit to right away? It's an important lesson there when things happen that are good, that go our way. Man, I'm Captain Awesome. If that's your default reflex, that's okay. There's grace for that. But it's time to grow up, do you see? David says, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perazim. It's not Baal, as like the Canaanite gods, the Baals. No, it just means the Lord in the Canaanite tongue. The Lord has broken through like a flood is what that means. And the Philistines left their idols there. And David and his men carried them away. The Philistines left their idols there. You know what we call that in the New East Texas translation? They done got whipped Godless. You you ever been there? Because I sure have. Been whipped godless. The things that I thought I could trust, the crutches that I thought were strong, actually get knocked out from under me. Man, I've been there. The, the, The mythologies that I clung to, that I thought might were true about God, he has a way of removing those. And it takes a good, strong beating every now and then. They got whipped godless, which is interesting because about 100 years prior, the Israelites had been whipped godless. They lost the Ark of the Covenant, and the Philistines carried it away. They knew what this was like. So they're not exacting retribution on the Philistines. The Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Verse 22, record scratch. Here's a surprising moment. And the Philistines, our verse 22, and the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Dun, dun, dun. Wait, wait. They came back again and in the same valley? Like, there's probably still chunks of dude laying around from the last time they tried this. We don't know how much time has passed, but they're thinking, we're the Philistines. We're from Crete. We have metal. We have the high ground. There's more of us. That's the second stream king. Surely this time we're going to get them. Never mind that we don't even have our idols with us this time. Because see, in our human pride, there is a way that seems right unto a man. David will write about that later. They gather again. Remember, this is just four miles away from Jerusalem. It's scary. How is this going to go? So what do you think is going to happen? Certainly David's generals, his fighting men, his warriors, have blood in their eye. They're frothing at the mouth, ready to attack and deal another decisive victory. We think that from 1 Chronicles 11, this is where three of David's mighty men sneak through the line of the Philistines and go into Bethlehem and bring David back some water. It's happening at the same time as 2 Samuel 5. Because they're just amped up, and they can't wait to just go and hack and gash some of these Philistines. But here's sort of the whole point of the passage. Verse 23, And when David inquired of the Lord... Why are you bothering to pray? You know what God wants. They're the Philistines. They're the bad guys. You're David. You're the hero of your story. You're the good guy. Of course God wants you to whip the Philistines. Hmm. It's been said that God is too creative to do the same thing twice. Perhaps. But even that's not the point. David inquired of the Lord. He's going to let God be bigger. He's going to let God lead the way. David inquired of the Lord. He said, And God said, you shall not go up, go around to their rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. I love 2 Samuel 5, 23. It's so fascinating. This is very specific, very precise. You think that great big God, who is the creator of the cosmos, doesn't know the precise specificity of the entire creation? He knows where the balsam trees are in the valley of Rephaim or 1,000 B.C. Tells David, I don't want you to go straight up frontal assault this time. This time, you're going to go around behind them. By the way, this is a terrible strategy. You're showing them your backs. You're going up through rugged terrain as you saw in that picture. You're going up rugged terrain and it looks to your enemy as though you're retreating. It looks like you're running away. And not only that, now there's nothing between them, your enemy, and Jerusalem, the capital. This looks like a terrible idea, but God says, no, 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 this time we're going to do it differently. Because you've asked, I want you to go around them, flank them to the either side, and go around behind them to where the balsam trees are. It's going to look like you're failing. David probably had to do a big sales pitch to his generals to make this happen. Watch what happens in verse 24. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees. Okay, that's weird. Because um, no human army can march on treetops, even if they're very, very small. No human army can march on treetops. There's something otherworldly going on here. Whether this is an army of the hosts of heavenly angels is how I take it, or some other phenomenon, we don't know. But it is fascinating in the Gospel of Luke, Luke will tell us over and over again that Jesus is the man. He is the commander of the hosts of the armies of heaven. Jesus is the man. And so we believe that when this occurs, that it is the second member of the Godhead Trinity, a pre-incarnate Christ, commanding the hosts of the armies of heaven down upon the Philistines. That's a bad day to be a Philistine. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. These angelic armies, whatever they are, swoop down and destroy with great surprise the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded. Incidentally, that's always a good idea. David did exactly as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. See, David is growing up. He prays about this thing again. He understands that it's not necessarily just about the outcome, do you see? David is growing up. The angels destroy, and the victory is given, and the Philistine army is blown back 15 to 20 miles to Geba and Gezer. It's about almost pushed into the Mediterranean Sea, and the Philistines from this point forward are really never ever a factor again. So why is this passage here? Is it just a a moral and a fable to tell us to be better, to try harder? Of course not. It's telling us something significant about Jesus and what it looks like when a man of God is a grown-up because what the world needs is grown-ups. So let me just give you three quick principles, applications from this text that I hope will all ruminate and percolate in all of our hearts, souls, and minds, even our bodies, as we go into the new calendar year. What is a grown-up. Let me define it this way. A grown-up in God's eyes is someone who involves God in every part of their life. It's not just someone who's smart, who's wealthy, who's tall, who's healthy. No, 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 no. A grown-up in God's eyes is someone who involves God in every part of their life. Yes, I know I should love my wife. Yes, I know I should lead and love my children, but I want to involve the Lord in that. I want to engage him as a part of that. We have every advantage that David had. David was a grown-up, and he was in the process of growing up, but we have every advantage above David because we live in an age when the better David has come, and he has even sent his spirit to indwell us. David never got that. The spirit of the Lord would come on David from time to time, but never permanently, everlastingly indwelled him. We have that. We have this person who is our divine access. We don't have to put on the ephod and spin the jewels. We approach the throne of God's grace with confidence. He is our divine encouragement. He's always whispering truth and good tidings to us. He is our divine provision. He is all that we need for life and godliness. So a grown-up in God's eyes is someone who involves God in every part of their life, which I want to pause for just a moment and ask all of us to do some legitimate inventory and introspection. How much of my life do I actually involve God in, and how much of it am I just on autopilot? Well, of course God wants me to do this and this and this and this, and I'll buzz him when I need him. That is spiritual immaturity, and what God wants is for us to grow up, because what this world needs is grown-ups. Second point, I've already mentioned this a time or three, but I want to say it explicitly now. The result of prayer is not the point. The praying is the point. Hear you know, this other like, thing. Well, I prayed and I prayed, but I didn't get what I wanted. Irrelevant and immaterial. The object or the outcome of the prayer is not the point. We are such a Western civilization people. We think we ask for things and we get things and done, check the box, and we're moving on. No, 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 no. David, do you see? Love. His God. You don't believe that. Oh, there are a hundred something Psalms written by him where he declares wonderfully his affection, his love for his God. This is what it means to have a relationship. Not just trying to figure out what the will of God is. We're missing the point if that's all we're after. But actually being the walking around will of God in this world. Now I hope that this church that this campus continues and consistently is a place a breeding ground you might say of where people grow up of where all of us have access to relationships with people who are grown ups perhaps even right now the lord is flashing a face or three in front of your mind and you go yeah that guy that lady she's a total grown up she's only 16 that guy is a total grown up he's 78 but you just know But they're never rattled. They always know essentially what's going on, proper perspective, because of their proximity to their God. The result of prayer is not the point. The praying itself is the point. And so finally, the third point is really an exhortation. It goes very simply like this. Grow up. Grow up. I don't even mean that in a parental or a pastoral sense. I mean, this is God's will for your life. Well, what does God want me to do? Is I want to be a pharmacist or this? I don't know. Grow up. What is God's will for me? God's will is for you to do and be God's will. That you and I would persistently grow in spending time with him in God's word, seeking him in prayer, regardless of the outcome. And then no matter what the outcome is, we just won't care that much because we will have been in his presence. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. He says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Huh. What does that mean? What does that look like? Look at the life of Jesus, who, if he wasn't with his disciples, his people, he was praying. He's either ministering to the needy in some capacity, or he was with his disciples, or he was praying to his Father. He's God. But he would wake up early and go, and he would spend time with the Father. Not to get something, not to accomplish something, but because he loved his Father. See, he is the better David, and he has come. He's the ultimate grown-up, immersing all of his life as a human being as he walked this world in prayer. And not only that. He comes into this world, and we get to wrap up our Christmas and Advent season. He comes into this world, and I think it might be a little bit of a stretch, but I'm completely and totally okay with that. He comes into this world, and his life is finished. Yet again, atop a tree, nailed to the cross, this time not to eradicate the Philistines, Praise God, because I'm the Philistine in the story. We have a tendency to read the stories of David and think, well, that's me. I'm the, I'm the lead character in that story. Yeah, no, you're in the story, but you're the Philistine. The enemy of God, created but marred by sin, an enemy of the kingdom of Christ. And yet this king has come. And the Philistines aren't destroyed. Instead, he is atop a tree and he dies. So that Philistines could be called firstborn sons. What a scandal of the gospel of grace. And the more we reflect on that, the more we ruminate on that, the more we will grow up. This is God's will for our lives. May we do precisely that in the coming year. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for Jesus, this king who cares this champion who has died, and this big brother of ours who is proud of us, who even now sings songs over us in the assembly. Father, I do pray that for all of these, your people gathered in this physical space or digitally online, that this will be a year where we grow up, where we look back next Advent, say, yes, yes, I I spent more time with him in his word and prayer and with his people. Yes, I've grown up because we know that's what this world needs. And Father, if there's someone here this morning or listening online who does not know you, who does not have a relationship with the king but is still a Philistine at odds and enmity with you, I pray, God, that you will give them eyes to see the cross that they will step out of death and into life and into relationship with your son Jesus. May we, a church have the wisdom and the compassion speaking the truth in love to tell them the truth, to lead them well. So we pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.